0: Well, good morning. I realize I have nowhere to set my water. This is awkward. Um, Let me grab this tool right here. Thank you. Awesome. Well, if you're here this morning to hear an awesome uh, lesson about Father's Day, I need to go ahead and give you a fair warning. Uh, This lesson will not be about Father's Day, per se, this morning. Um, Instead, we're going to be continuing our um, series that Casey started a few weeks ago in Ephesians. We're gonna be continuing that this morning, so I apologize, but I do feel like I would be doing my fellow dads a great disservice if I didn't maybe say something in this space, right? So if you're really looking for something to to do for dad, if you're trying to figure out, you know, what can we do to really show him how much we appreciate him? We got him the golf balls, we got him the t-shirt, what can we do to really show him how, how thankful we are for him? I'm just gonna throw this out here. You can take it if you want it. If not, leave it where it is. But maybe just see at some point today if maybe dad wants to take a nap, <laughs> you know? I think, that would be, I think that would be a really good gesture. Now, he may take it, uh, thank you, thank you. He may take it, he may not, you know, nothing crazy, like maybe like an hour, I don't know, maybe we'll just say an hour. All right, we'll just do an hour. I'm feeling an hour vibe. Just see if he wants to do it. I think that would be a great kindness for dad. I think he would really appreciate that. And all you dads out there, you're welcome. (laughs) Yeah, you're welcome. You can thank me later after my nap. All right, we're gonna be in Ephesians 2 this morning. If you wanna start making your way there in your Bibles. Uh, I wanna tell you a quick story before we get started. When I was younger, uh, I played football. Now, I was a defensive end uh, at my high school, for my high school team. I was a starter for whoever chuckled, Um, and I was always about this size, okay? I was never a big physical presence. I was always very similar height, just like less jiggly in this area. I was more skin and bones, okay, back in that day but I used uh, the tools that my coaches had given me to my advantage the best I could, and I was often able to kind of hold my own until one game in particular where I faced an opponent that was way better than me, okay? And I can admit this now like 20-something years later. He was way better than me. He towered over me. He probably had like a hundred pounds on me. He kind of reminded me like if a bear stands on his hind legs, you know, kind of mixed with like a Marvel villain, okay? All right, I mean, this was a huge guy. Well, he was really, uh, I was really struggling going up against him. He played offensive tackle, I was defensive end. uh, So we were opposite the ball And he did one move in particular that I was really struggling with. So, on the snap of the ball, which he knows what that is, okay? On the snap of the ball, he would take his big bare paw and he would just slap me as hard as he could right in my ear hole, okay? And if you've ever worn a helmet and this has ever happened to you, you know it's like a flashbang goes off, all right? It's very disorienting, all right? And it would take me a couple of seconds before I could. Get reacclimated to what was going on, and oftentimes by that he had gotten position on me. Well, one set of series uh, in particular, they scored to my side of the ball. Okay, and I knew, going back over to the sideline, I was probably going to be in trouble okay coaches tend to not like that and so I go over to the sideline and I sit down and my coach starts making his way to me and I'm like okay I just need to be really upfront with him and I can't remember exactly what I said okay he comes up and was like what happened what's going on over there and I can't remember exactly what was said but I talked in typical coach player dialogue you know and I just said I'll paraphrase it was like that guy out there he's he's being a real meaning All right. (laughs) He's being a real meanie. All right. And I told him about the bear paw and I was like, coach, listen, I'm only going to be able to turn the cheek like maybe 13 or 14 more times before I start getting upset. And so coach looked at me real confused and stood up and it was time for us to go back on the field. Our offense was equally horrible. Um, so it was already time for us to go back on the field and coach stands up and yells at the top of his lungs, the name Rodney. Okay, well, I knew what Rodney meant. Rodney was fourth string defensive end, okay? And Rodney was not as big as the bear, and he was not even as tall as me, but Rodney was much stronger. And where I tried to use brain over brawn, okay? Rodney didn't really bring brain to football, okay? He was just more brute, Raw strength, and so coach grabs Rodney by the back of the jersey and says, "You're in there." And he starts walking him out on the field, and he's kind of coaching him up, you know, last minute, and then he throws him out into the huddle. Well, I'm sitting on the sideline now, and I'm crushed because I I realize there's a good chance I've probably lost my starting position. I'm going to have to really work hard to gain this back next week. I'm going to have to explain to my fellow defenders. Um, How I let them down how they scored on my watch all of these things are kind of going off in my head along with the ringing from the bear paw and As I'm sitting there thinking about this all of a sudden the ball on the field is snapped. Okay. Well, I immediately look up and what am I watching? Rodney versus the bear. Okay, and wouldn't you know it the bear does exactly what he had been doing to me all game He just takes his bear paw and he swipes right at Rodney's helmet. But what came next was what was really amazing, okay? Because Rodney, in like this unbelievable feat of athleticism, just like Matrix dodged the ball, okay? Just completely dodged it. And then proceeded to go right in to giving him the business. I mean, don't think Muhammad Ali, think George Foreman. He's just pounding away. It was aggressive, okay? It was very aggressive. The ball carrier goes right by Rodney. He's just still pounding away. The play is over. The whistle is blown, still hammering away. We're watching this in total shock on the sideline. The referee has to pull him off. He takes him back. He throws him back to our side of the field, and he kicks him out of the game. This kid's out of here. Well, my coach goes out to the field and gets Rodney, and man, He was livid, okay? He was furious. And he lets out this long string of really angry words at Rodney at full volume. Everybody can hear, everybody can see, I can't believe you would do this, not in my jersey, you'll never sing in this town again, just all sorts of nonsense he's yelling at him. And he does this all the way until he slams him down right on the bench beside me, okay? Now, everybody's watching, and Coach knows this. The bleachers are right behind us. Everybody is focused on what's going on. So Coach gets right down in Rodney's face, okay? And in a voice only me and Rodney could hear, he says, great job. great job. What in the world is he talking about? Then he proceeds to grab me and he starts telling me, now you get in there and you don't let them get by you again. You hear me? And right before he pushes me out on the field one last time, he says, I bet he doesn't do it again. (laughs) I I, got to say during that whole exchange, the reason I tell you that story is I was so confused. Like, I was, I was really confused. I couldn't quite tell if I was in trouble. There was a lot of yelling going on, and, and there was a lot of angry words being said. But it also worked out really well. That guy was quite pleasant after that encounter, okay? But I never really understood, was I in trouble, was I not? What's going on here? There was a lot of things taking place. Well, that's how I feel When I'm reading through Ephesians and I get to the start of chapter two, especially when you see Paul use those three words, as for you, okay? For not being a Father's Day sermon, that has a real dad vibe to it, right? As for you is what you tell somebody when everybody else in the equation is gone and it's just one-on-one. And it's either gonna be punishment, severe punishment, or maybe it's going to be a little bit of mercy, maybe a pat on the back. As for you is this real unknown statement about what might happen. So before we look at who or if this person is in trouble and our let's make sure we have an understanding of who he's talking about when he says, as for you. You can find this peppered throughout chapter one. So I don't want to spend a lot of time here. We've got a lot of ground to cover this morning, but let's just take a quick look. Chapter one, verse one, if you're following, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. He describes this two ways there, or he describes his audience in two ways there. He says, it's God's holy people and the what? Faithful. Right off the bat, Paul is kind of saying, hey, this is a different message. This message is not necessarily for everyone. This message is more geared towards those who are already faithfully following Christ. Now, you may say, well, Alan, doesn't he say it's directed to Ephesus? Doesn't it mention Ephesus in there? Yes, but you know what was something interesting I found out looking at this? Early manuscripts of the book of Ephesians oftentimes had a different church name. In that spot. Sometimes they didn't even have the word Ephesus at all. And I think what is interesting about that is Paul was maybe writing this to a broader audience, not to a specific church. But also, other churches are hearing what Paul is saying and thinking, hey, why can't that be us? We're faithful, we're holy. What other words does he use? Look over in uh, verse, let's see, verse 11 of chapter 1. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. That's a follow-up from what he said in verse 4. For he chose us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Paul is also adding a little bit of ownership to this message We are the chosen. This is not he who has an ear, let him hear. This is a specific message to a specific group of people, God's holy people, God's faithful, the chosen. He also included, where did he get that phrase, you know, chosen, Jesus said that to his disciples. John 15 in verse 16, he said, telling the apostles, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so whatever you do and ask in my name, the Father will give you. Paul is including us in a great company of big names, big names like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But he's also including us in with himself. Notice he says we, the chosen. Paul is saying, hey, the faithful, the holy, the chosen, we are are the recipients of this message. And I ask, is that us? Are are we the faithful? Are are we God's holy people? Are we set apart? Do we feel like we're the chosen? I think think that we are. I think we fit that. But I guess if you were going to put one word on it, it would be the church. He's speaking here to the church. Why at the end, look in verse uh, 22 and 23 uh, of chapter one, why would he say, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. He's saying Christ is the head of the church, which is his body. Now we're going to talk about the body. This is you guys. This is a message For you. And so I think what Paul is trying to set us up for and is trying to say here is really two things. One, this is kind of intended for a mature audience, okay? I lose sight of scriptures sometimes because I think, oh, well, that's for people who don't understand Christ. You know, when Paul talks about all the powerful things that God has done in Jesus in chapter one, And even when he's talking about what we're going to talk about today, being made alive in Christ, I feel like oftentimes I'm like, well, that's for people who don't really know Christ to understand. The same thing happens at the end of Ephesians. In chapter 6, he talks about this armor of God. Do you know when I heard messages about the armor of God a lot? When I was young. Before I came to know Christ. Okay? You know when I don't hear about putting on the armor of God a lot? now. I mean, I hear it, and I see it sometimes, and I read this scripture myself, but we don't remind Christians sometimes that, hey, there is a message for you that you can draw out of this. But I also think he's saying this is for intended for mature audiences for another reason, and that is because... don't get me wrong. I don't want to sit here and say, Alan, so you're saying no one else can read this. Uh, The world cannot read Ephesians because of this. That's not what I'm saying. This message is for all, but it's intended for us. And I think the reason is, is because people who aren't faithful, holy, chosen followers of Christ, people who aren't that, might not be able to understand some of the things he's about to tell us here in chapter 2. We'll talk more about that here in a second. So now that we understand who he is talking to, that he is talking to us, his church, let's see what message he has in store for us. I guess let's find out if we are in trouble or not. So beginning in chapter 2, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Not off to a great start, okay? You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thought. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving Of wrath. There's a lot to unpack there, okay? There's a lot. There's a couple of things I would immediately point out. Notice what he says when he's talking about the disobedient, okay? He's talking about the disobedient. He's not talking to, okay? He doesn't direct this message to them. I think that that reiterates the fact that this message is for a mature audience, this message is for those already following Jesus. Okay. I think that's one thing to take out. The other thing is, what is this kingdom of air business he's talking about? What does that mean? Well, he's very obviously the ruler of the kingdom of air is very obviously Satan. That is who he is discussing in here. That is who is leading this big group of disobedient people. Okay. But what does that mean kingdom of air? Well, some scholars believe that Satan is attempting To keep you from heaven. Therefore, he is occupying the space between this earth and the eternal life in heaven. He's occupying that air in between. Okay? That's one way to think of it. And it's very interesting. He was kicked out of heaven, and so he just posted up right underneath it. Okay? That's a very interesting way to look at it. But before I was enlightened by that, I used to always think it was something very different, something a lot more simpler. And I'm just gonna go ahead and share this with you guys. You're gonna probably think this is totally silly. But if I said I was in charge of this space right here, okay, if I said this is mine, this is Alan's right here, would anybody in this room care? No, why? Because there's nothing here. And that is what's going on in that kingdom of air. There is nothing. There is no substance. He is actually not providing you any benefit. It's a unique contrast to what is happening in God's kingdom. Look over in verse 7 of chapter 1. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us God is actively lavishing us in the riches of His grace. Are you getting that in a kingdom of air? Look at what he says over here uh, in verse twenty eight excuse me eighteen. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. I tell you what, I'm willing to bet money you're not getting that in a kingdom full of air. That is something you're only going to get, an inheritance you don't deserve in the kingdom of God. Okay? I think that that's what he is trying to show us, that there are kingdoms at work in opposition to God's people, but the rewards are not quite the same. So why is he telling an audience of faithful people that you were dead in your transgressions and that you were disobedient back in that time and that you were only deserving of wrath? I think he's telling a faithful audience this because Paul knows in a faithful Christian walk, we have peaks and valleys. Peaks and valleys. There are times when we walk close to God. There are times when we maybe don't walk as close. And we see this. You see this in your life. Maybe you have family members that have fallen away over time. Or maybe you've had family members that have gotten stronger over time. I always think it's amazing. You, you see some people that will, will get horrible medical um, uh, diagnosis. I mean, they, they will uh, um, um, just be just, I mean, their body just deteriorates with disease and yet their faith grows stronger. Isn't that amazing when you see that? But on the same hand, we do see people that maybe go through the same thing or maybe lose people to disease and to sickness and It's not quite the same story. Instead of great faith, they have big questions, you know? I think what Paul is trying to tell us is that in these peaks and valleys, we have to remember where we came. Where we once were was dead and deserving of wrath. I think he's also very aware that people and sometimes even the faithful fall. In Revelation, uh, a few years after Paul would write this letter, John would receive his vision, and Jesus would tell him, you need to write this to the church in Ephesus. And I think this is interesting, because the church in Ephesus is no different. They struggle as well. Listen to what he says. You don't have to look, or you can if you want to. It's in Revelation chapter 2. He says to the angel in the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and you have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Does that not sound like a group of faithful, holy, chosen people. Those are some unbelievable characteristics he's talking about to the church of Ephesus. But right after that, he says, but this one thing I have against you, you've left your first love. See how far you have fallen. What Jesus tells John to write. I think even the faithful sometimes stumble. And I think that Paul was very aware of this And the church of Ephesus was no different. But I think also what Paul is trying to do is he's building suspense by these verses. These first three verses of chapter 2, he's trying to say, hey, you were dead. You were disobedient. You were deserving of wrath. And he's trying to build up the problem so that he can simply give a solution. Look in verse 4. But because of his great love, this is what brought us out of death and disobedience and wrath. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgression, it is by grace that you have been saved. Paul is trying to tell this faithful, holy, chosen people, that are walking in Christ, that there are gonna be very high moments in your walk and there are gonna be low moments in your walk. But at the lowest point in Christ, you're still more alive than you ever were without it. At the lowest point in Christ, you are still more alive than you ever were without him. Who can speak those words? <laughs> who has the strength and the knowledge to say that? Paul. Who has every right to question where God's walk has brought them? Then Paul, who likely writes this letter from prison. Boy, I, I guess if, if there was ever a time to evaluate where you've come from and where it's brought you it's when you are chained as an innocent person among guilty men and there's a good chance you'll never see the light of day again what does paul think not that i was better off before that i was only alive when my faith in christ began i think that's a very powerful powerful message that he is trying to send to the faithful, the chosen, and the holy people of God. I think he's also stating a very important key element that is found in verse 4. You notice he says he made us alive with him. You know, I used to always put my emphasis on being made alive. I thought that that was the cool part of this scripture, that we were being made alive. If you look at it, it's the verb in this long series of verses. This is the action here. We're being made alive, but it is coupled and exclusive to the fact that it is with Christ that that is done. And how? Well, we can encounter Christ in our personal walk, but we also encounter Christ as the church. This is why he talks about the body of Christ. Remember, that's what led into chapter 2. He is head of the church, which is his body, okay? When we come together, Christ is there. Why? Because a body can't live without a head. It doesn't work that way. So as we begin to form, Christ is there. That's why he said, where two or more are gathered, there I will be also. Okay, Because when we come together as a body, that is when we are being united with Christ. And so I would ask the question, do you feel like you're being made alive when you come together with these people in this room? I said, it's kind of a tough question, right? Y'all want me to take a stab at it? I'll answer. (laughs) I mean... Not always. I mean, there's times when I come to church and it's not really making me feel that alive. But I will tell you this. I have felt more alive more often recently than I had before. Because I think we are being made alive here. I think it is happening. When we see new people walk in the door, man, I'm feeling a little life in the body. I'm feeling a little life with Christ. When we see people coming back that maybe haven't been here in a while, I'm feeling alive again. I feel like he's making us alive with him. When I hear the praise team sing a song and I just got to stop and listen because they are rocking it. Man, I'm feeling alive. Driving back on that Saturday morning from the Men's Retreat, (laughs) after hanging out with a lot of people in this room that I don't get to hang out very often and don't talk to probably near as much as I should, I felt really alive driving back from the Men's Retreat. Now, I was exhausted, okay? I was exhausted. There's members of the body here that snore really loud, so it's kind of hard to sleep. I'm not going to say any names, but you know who you are, okay? I was exhausted, but man, I really felt alive driving back after that weekend. And let me just add, the post-Men's Retreat nap was awesome. It was epic. It was epic. I was feeling alive. I'm going to tell you another time I felt alive. I felt alive last week. Watching Robert and Landon standing at Baptistry, Watching all these kids sitting on the front row and all these kids sitting on the ground, I felt alive. I felt like we were being made alive right then in Christ. I think Paul understands that we need to be reminded sometimes as the faithful that we're not just meant to just serve and die here and that everything comes later. He is actively making us alive in Christ now. How much more will there be? later. But that's not all. Let's look over in verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that the coming ages he might show is the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us. In Jesus Christ. Three ways he has joined us with Christ. I guess to counter the three, the death and the disobedience and the wrath, he gives us three ways that we are united with Christ to get out of that. We are made alive with him and we are raised with him. And notice he says, now we are being seated with him in a heavenly realm. I think Paul's saying two things here. I think, one, he's reminding us, and I struggle with this all the time, I lose sight of my eternal seat because I'm worried about all this temporary stuff. You know? And I think that sometimes that's our struggle. We get bogged down in the temporary world that we live in, and we forget about our eternal place that Christ has raised us to. But I also think Paul is saying something else here. I think he is saying the stakes are a little bit higher than we realize. He's bringing us out of this world and into an eternal world. Okay? He's taking us into a spiritual level by our alive and being raised with Christ. He is taking us to a higher plane. And what's interesting is... (laughs) that kingdom of air that's trying to separate you from heaven, God, Paul is telling us that God has just already put us above that. And he has seated us with Christ who, if you look in verses 22 and 23, what did it say he did? He put all things under his feet. He has put us into, in the midst of a spiritual war. And and I think that that's a huge undertone in Ephesians. I think It's talking a lot about spiritual warfare, and you can see that in Ephesians 6 when he's talking about armor of God. Why would he tell us to put on armor of God? Because we're fighting a war. But he's also saying, you have been given the tactical advantage of the highest ground, okay? And I don't know a lot about war and battles and all that. I'm a gamer, okay? And in games if you're lost or you don't know what's going on or you're fighting Darth Vader in the Galactic Empire, wherever you're at, strategically, it's always better to have the high ground because you have a better view of what's going on and a better view of your opponent. And I think what he is saying here is you have been placed in that. Why would James say resist the devil and he will flee from, from you? Because the devil will not attack you if you're sitting in your proper seat. He will not attack you if you have the high ground and you're seated with Christ because he knows there's no way he can win. I guess his only tactic is to get you to give up your seat. We're not just standing on some rock traveling through space. We are seated on high. With the Lord of creation And the Prince of Peace. And I think that's what those who don't know Christ might have a hard time understanding. Because if you don't know Christ and the power of his rising, then you don't realize how you are being raised up. And you don't realize where your seat actually is. If you don't know what he did on the cross, you can't know what he's doing right now in your life. And I think that that's why Paul sends this message to a mature audience. It is because of our faith in Jesus that we were taken from what we were then. And because of his great love, we have been made to sit where we are now. Paul uses this structure in this passage of then versus now, and when you look at it, he's kind of brought balance back to it: how we were versus how we are now. But then he goes into, uh, you know, this passage because once you realize that it's all been put together, then what now, right? And he goes into this passage to explain. And and the initial question might be, well, what is the cost? of this? What is the cost of being made alive? And I think that's what Paul thinks his audience is immediately going to ask, what is the price tag on this? And that's why he immediately goes into this answer. Verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that none can boast. Did you hear that? It is a gift. It is a gift. I mean, not only did you not ask for it, you couldn't have afforded it anyway, but God in his great love for us through Christ gave us a gift. And that's why he finishes up this passage calling us God's handiwork because there is no more beautiful picture he could paint than to take you where you were then and transform you into what you are now through his great love and through the sacrifice of his son there's no greater portrait that can be pictured that, that can be painted than what he has done in you but yet he has done it in us all has chosen faithful, his church. We are his mighty handiwork. And sometimes I think I don't always look at myself as valuable as Paul is telling me I am. But there's one other thing, and Paul finishes up with one very specific Um, reason that this is all take place. Uh, Because why did God give us this great gift? And why did God do this transformation in us from how we were to how we are now? Why is he continually doing it? Because it says in verse 10, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul is telling us that he has saved us through his great mercy and his great grace. And he has set us aside in Christ and has given us life to help him do that work again. And I leave you with that thought this morning. What is his great work? Paul tells us that uh, he has prepared in advance for us. You are moving right now on a trajectory that you will be intercepted by a possible good work that God has deliberately put you in path of. What is it? What is doing his good work? You know, is it sharing our riches with someone who doesn't feel as rich? Maybe that coworker whose spouse is sick, or that mom that lives down the street that's just barely keeping her head above water. Is that doing God's work? Is it maybe being more deliberate about what He has done with us and, 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 and how He has transformed our lives, and being more deliberate about bringing that up in conversations out in the world? And telling co workers or classmates or maybe even family, hey, let me just tell you just for a minute how awesome my God is. Maybe it's being more deliberate. Is that doing God's work? Is showing His work, um, knowing what great forgiveness He has given into us, and saying, hey, you know what? Maybe it's time to forgive somebody else that maybe isn't as deserving. Because I wasn't. Is that doing his good work? Maybe it's taking somebody who is not very deserving, and maybe it's, you know, they haven't even really asked for it, and, and saying, you know what, today you look like you could use a nap. I'm just throwing it out there. I was actually making sure you guys were still awake. So I'm going to ask the praise team to come out here. That is my challenge for you look for opportunities to do his great work. I challenge you to open up your heart for opportunities for God is making you alive. And I hope that as we go through Ephesians, you start to see more. Paul gives us a great base here to go off of. And we're going to see some great things moving forward. I believe our prayer team may be making their way to the back. Um, and I'm just going to encourage you real quick. The praise team is going to sing a song. We're all going to stand up here in just a second. If, if you are struggling today, if, if today's a tough day for you, um, or if maybe the you from back then is interfering with where you want to be sitting now, um, I really suggest you go talk to one of these people at the back and let them let them do let them do a little loving on you. Let them maybe talk to Jesus on your behalf, because I guarantee you, if you go back there and you guys start talking, He's going to be there, and there's going to be some life being breathed somewhere. I encourage you to do that, or if you Don't consider yourself to be in the faithful and the holy, but you like what you hear and would like to try that on, I encourage you as well, grab somebody near you before you go because the stakes are too high to just say, well, maybe later I'll work it out. I encourage you. I hope you all have a great week. And if you have a need this morning, uh, you're welcome to come forward now as we stand and sing.